Well, beloved, we're continuing in our series this morning, Living as a Minority Community in a Hostile World. Returning to it this week after last week, where we took the time to really focus on communion. We did that last week because communion, I think, sometimes can creep up on us and uh, ends up almost being an appendage tacked on at the end of a service. And it's just way too important to do that. So last week we spent the time to really set it up and uh, reflect on it properly. And hopefully the Lord uh, used that in your life. But today we're back to our series, Living as the Minority Community. And the topic that we're picking up with this morning is the topic of sexual purity. Sexual purity sets us apart in this world as a minority community. Peter, writing to the believers there in the first century, says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and following, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the call to the believer, to be holy, to be set apart, consecrated unto God, living a life that is distinctly different than a world that does not know God and does not love God. The people of God are called to a sexual ethic that sets us apart. It makes us a minority community, not just today in this day and age, but it has been true for the people of God from the beginning. God himself has set his people apart from the, the sexual ethic of their pagan neighbors. In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 3, God writes there to the children of Israel, after having removed them forcefully from Egypt, that they are forbidden to follow the sexual practices of the Egyptians from whom they have just been delivered or the Canaanites into whose land they are now going. They must not participate in the sexual behaviors of either their captors or their conquered. You move to the New Testament, and you find there in the letters to the churches of the New Testament a repeated emphasis on sexual purity, on the fact that we have been set apart unto God, and that we are to live differently because of that. For example, in the Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, he speaks about that. His letter to the church at Ephesus in 4.19. His letter to the church at Rome in Romans 13.13. 13. Christ's message to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. He speaks to all of these local churches who are struggling with immorality invading into the church, seeping into the church, an immorality that exists among their pagan neighbors and says that these things must not be. We find ourselves here in the 21st century American culture. 
21st century America with regard to sexual purity is something that is neither practiced nor welcomed. We live in a world that is absolutely immersed in immorality. We are saturated in sexuality. We are probably the most over-sexualized generation in the history of our country. It is used to sell everything. And we regularly partake of its salacious nature. Things that would have been absolutely outside the pale of possibility are now regularly displayed. And our conscience becomes deadened by the regular and constant bashing and exposure to really uh, an immorality that is from one end to the other. Beloved, as we look at these things this morning, what I want to do with you is look at three statements. Three statements about sexual purity. Statements that we must understand and we must wholeheartedly embrace. Understand and embrace in order to maintain our distinct status as a holy people. If we lose this fight, the gospel message will become blurred, obscured, gutted of its life-changing power. This is serious stuff. The first statement that I want to look at with you this morning, and I have so much material that I want to cover and, and not a lot of time to do it, but here we go. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. Listen, it begins here. The church is weak. The church is weak, and one of the reasons the church is weak is because we have negotiated the opening chapters of Genesis. Many places, they wink and a nod. The idea that, yeah, I know it says that, but, but we know better. Evolution has saturated the people of God and gutted Genesis its power. We need to hear it again. We need to hear it fresh. Purity portrays our theology. That is the first statement. Purity portrays our theology. In other words, our sexual or sexual expression is inherently religious. It is an inherently religious thing. Now, that's a statement in of itself that is, that is jarring to the ears of many. It's thought of as mere biology. But, beloved, it is not mere biology. It is absolutely religious. It is spiritual. And so our approach to purity portrays what we really believe about God, about man, and about ourselves. What do we really believe about God, about man, and about ourselves? Are we the product 
of some random goo-to-you kind of approach. Because if that's true, then there is no transcendent morality. But if we are the special creation of God, as Genesis clearly says, then that creator establishes a transcendent sexuality to which we must adhere. It is an expression of what we really do believe. Is God good, wise, and loving? Or is he uncaring, unloving, and remote? How we behave, how we think sexually, reveals the answer to those questions. I want to begin here with you, and again, there's so much I want to say here, but just some basic observations, okay? Let's just make some basic observations from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and from those observations, I want to draw some conclusions, okay? So here they are. Let's just begin here in verse 1, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God is the creator of all. All that is, God brought into existence. He is the creator, and thus he is the owner of all things. On the sixth day, God spoke into existence man. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God created man and woman in his image. And he created those first individuals, Adam and Eve, with, with an incredible degree of similarity. The differences between a man and a woman are distinct and profound, but actually, biologically, they are not all that different. It's really quite fascinating. Everything that I've been able to read say they they share like 99 point something percent genetic code. So they are very, very similar. Men and women are very, very similar. But they are also profoundly different. Profoundly different. It is the woman who conceives. It is the woman who who carries life inside her womb, in her own body, and brings that life into the world. We are not interchangeable. Although there is that high degree of similarity, there is profound differences. Verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed the union of those two individuals with both the ability and the obligation to build up the human race. Be fruitful. That's a statement of blessing. 
Be fruitful and multiply. God has given to us the amazing ability that when a man and a woman come together, an immortal soul is brought into existence. A person who will live forever, either in the presence of God or absent in a place called hell. An incredible amount of creative power has been delegated by God to us. Over to chapter 2. We're there in chapter 2. Moses elaborates the events of that sixth day, filling in the white spaces and, and helping us to understand a little more of what went on and what God's mind is in all of this. And we notice there in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The man is alone. He is relationally alone in the sense that he lacks one like unto him. He is in a perfect vertical relationship with God. He is in a perfect vertical relationship over the creation, as as explained or elaborated there by his naming of the creation. But he lacks the horizontal relationship with one like unto him. It is not good. And so God creates woman. He creates woman. She was drawn from him, and she is created to correspond to, to him, to compliment him. There, verse 18, I will make a helper corresponding to him. Corresponding to him. Suited to him. And might I add him to her. Following the creation of Eve, God brings her to Adam. We have in verse 23, the very first wedding ceremony. God, as it were, acts as the role of the father of the bride. He is the one who escorts her on his right arm down the aisle and there brings her to the man. And the man pronounces here in verse 23 a statement of covenant loyalty. The very first marriage vows. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God goes on to say in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. For what reason? For the reason of verse 18 that it is not good for the man to be alone. For that reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall wed. He shall take a wife and he shall cleave to her. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and the woman wed. And they become one flesh. And that one flesh relationship, that covenant is a covenant of companionship. Satisfying, verse 18, and the terms of that covenant of companionship are relational exclusivity and sexual exclusivity. It is man and woman. It is husband and wife. 
in a covenant relationship. And at the end of chapter 1 and verse 31, the end of the sixth day, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It is very good. Very good. Beloved, there are many, many lessons to be drawn from this. I want to just a few, just a few to, to draw out as we think about this. And it speaks to the issue of purity. Purity. God is the one who creates. God is the one who defines. God is the one who assigns roles to humanity. God is the one who brought it all into existence. It is God the one who says it's not good for the man to be alone. It is God who is the one who solves that problem. It is God who is the one who brings it to the man. It is God the one who says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is God who says that at the end of all of this, it is very good. It is very good. That's why it's a spiritual thing. That's why it's a religious thing. Listen, God is the one who created gender. We have all kinds of confusion today in people's minds about gender. There is no confusion. There is male and there is female. Chapter 1, verse 27. There is man and there is woman. Chapter 2 and verse 22. God created male, female, man, woman. There is no confusion. Only what we introduce. Only what we introduce. Beloved, our sexuality is not a result of accident. It is not a result of random chance. It is the bringing about of what God created. He created men. He created women. He created us together in the image of God himself. And he gave us our sexuality. Now listen. This is a creation event. This is a creation event. And what that means is that gender is fixed and permanent. And it is as fixed and as permanent as the sun, the moon, and the stars of chapter 1 and verse 16. Just as real and just as fixed. And they shall become one flesh, chapter 2, verse 24. That is a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality. The two become one. And the illustration of the two becoming one is in childbearing. Where man and woman come together. That is the normal course of human events. A man and a woman wed. And following that wedding... They come together, and in the coming together of the man and the woman, they too become one in the, in the conception and birth of a child. That is the normal course of human events. That is how God designed all things. That the human race might be filled and formed, to use the language of chapter 1. 
Now, God created one man and one woman to correspond to that man. That means no multiple partners. God did not create one man and many women. He created one man, one woman. And they come together in verse 23. Beyond that, the woman bears the children as she receives the man's seed. Listen. Our sexual organs were created by God, designed by God, for specific purpose, for a specific purpose. It is the purpose to bring children into the world. God is good and gracious and, and allows that very act to, to, to embody a great amount of pleasure, to be sure. But they were created for a purpose. And to use them contrary to their divine intent is to exhibit rebellion against our Creator. She is suitable to him, chapter 2, verse 18. She corresponds to him. Now, without putting too fine a point on the matter, the plumbing is designed the way it's designed for a man and a woman to come together. And a marriage union is designed to be a lifelong covenant. A lifelong covenant. Now, there are times when the breaking of that covenant, the formal breaking of that covenant is permissible through divorce, but it has never the intent of God. It was never his design, it was never his intent, and it is never really his desire. It is an accommodation that he has made. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8. An accommodation made because of the hardness of our hearts. Notice verse 24 again, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, leaving and cleaving. He is joined to his wife. What that means is that all sexual expressions outside of the divine intent of the husband and wife together are really manifestations of a pagan theology. It is a pagan theology that leads to all kinds of sexual aberrations and deviations from the intended created order. And they are an assault upon the fundamental truth woven into this first marriage and all subsequent marriages, which is they are an illustration of the glory of Christ and his bride, the church. So when we engage, when anyone engages in aberrant sexuality, they are painting a blasphemous picture of Christ and the church. Now, this leaving and cleaving, this expression of the divine intent, rules out polygamy. It rules out polygamy. It is one man and one woman. 
Polygamy doesn't enter into the human situation until chapter 4 and verse 19 following the fall. It is Lamech who first expresses polygamy. Now, don't come up to me afterwards and say that, yeah, some of the Old Testament saints were polygamists. I get it. But just because followers of God have lived at a level below what God would want or require doesn't make it right. No polygamy. No homosexuality. To leave and cleave. To be joined together in one flesh eliminates the possibility of homosexuality being something God would either approve of or bless. It is to use one's sexual organs unnaturally against their design and intent. It is unnatural, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. No polygamy, no homosexuality, no adultery. For adultery violates the covenant of companionship. No adultery. No fornication. No fornication. Notice here that the union in verse 24 happens after the wedding of verse 23. First the wedding in verse 23, then the union in verse 24. That rules out all premarital sexual expression. No pornography. For at its core, pornography is fundamentally sex with oneself. The sexual expression is meant to be a shared experience. It is a shared experience that, that communicates intimacy and companionship. To engage in pornography is to have sex with yourself. And it is a violation of the divine order and intent for human sexuality. No pedophilia. Because it cannot produce children. It cannot produce children. No bestiality. For it crosses the creation boundaries. All of these things were practiced by the pagans in the promised land. And therefore God said to his people Israel, you must go and wipe them out. The time of the Amorites has come. For hundred years you spent in Egypt while the wrath of God burned and accumulated against those wicked people. And the judgment fell. Beloved, purity portrays our theology. It, it, it illustrates what we believe about God, what we believe about humanity, man, and what we believe about ourselves. Secondly, Purity protects our unity. Purity protects our unity. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 
Beloved, in all my years in Christian ministry, it has been my observation that nothing damages the reputation of Christ or the health of a local church like sexual immorality. Whether that be pastors who violate their marriage covenants or congregates who engage in immoral thoughts and deeds. The carnage of betrayal, anger, shame, deceit, hostility, and divisiveness have wounded many, many souls along the way. Beloved, sexual immorality grows out of idolatry. It grows out of idolatry and self-love. Sexual purity grows out of a love of God and neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You cannot engage in sexual immorality and love the Lord God or your neighbor. If you find yourself here, you can know for sure that you are engaged in idolatry and self-love. That's what's really going on in your heart. And when sexual immorality takes root in a church, it will eventually destroy the unity of that local church because unity depends on loving one another more than ourselves. That's what brings the unity. And that's why when you go through the New Testament and you look at the passages relating to sexual purity, they always appear in the larger context of love for the brethren. It is love for the brethren that brings about our unique sexual ethic. Now let's take a look here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Paul is writing here to a young Christian church. Hasn't been long in existence. It's a church comprised mostly of Gentiles who have come out of paganism. Beyond that, they are living in a seaport town, Thessalonica. And because it is a seaport city, it is subject to the same kind of moral debauchery that flooded all seaport towns, of which Corinth probably stands out as the prime example. Although one would think Los Angeles, perhaps today, could give it a run for the money. One writer speaking here about the the believers in this little church, this new church in Thessalonica, he said these believers, quote, lived in a pagan environment in which sexual looseness was not only practiced openly, but was also encouraged. And I thought, man, that exactly sounds like Los Angeles. Another seaport city. For this is the will of God, he says, verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You abstain from sexual immorality. Porneas. Sexual immorality. 
This is a, this is a comprehensive term here. It's a comprehensive word. It's to include any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside the circle of God's revealed will. In other words, adultery, premarital and extramarital intercourse, homosexuality, and all other perversions. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from all forms of sexual perverseness, debauchery. That each of you, verse 4, know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in in honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Possess his own vessel. Now, there's a long-running difference of opinion. It goes back centuries as to what that means. Possess his own vessel. Some... Believe that Paul is speaking here about how a man is to conduct himself within his own marriage. The vessel there meaning his wife. You are to to conduct yourself, possess your wife, as it were, or conduct your marriage, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's possible. It's a possible interpretation. The other is that the the statement is about the vessel refers to your own body. And so what Paul is saying here is you need to possess your own body. You need to exercise self-control with your own body, not in lustful passions. You're to control yourself in these things. In the face of the lustful passions. Lustful passions just speaks of the ungovernable nature of, of sexual desire that rules in the hearts of those who do not know God. Verse 5. You are to conduct yourself. And I, I'm inclined to, to, to think that it, that's what Paul's talking about. That what Paul is saying to the, to the believers here in Thessalonica is, is that you are to exercise self-control with regard to your sexual passions so that you conduct yourself not like those who don't know God, not like the pagans, but rather those who have been set apart by God as his children. Verse 6, and no man is to transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. No man is to transgress. The idea is to, is to go beyond the dividing line. No man is to cross over the line between right behavior, which is God's will, verse 3, and wrong behavior, which is pagan passions. Because to, to transgress here, to go too far, Paul says, is to defraud your brother. To defraud your brother. Now, if he is speaking about using the term brother here to to speak of another believer, then then basically what he's saying is that you do not defraud someone to whom you are spiritually related. Do not transgress and defraud your relatives. Listen, sexual immorality is basically fraud. It is basically fraud. It is fraud because it promises what it can never deliver. Instead, it hurts all involved. It promises one thing and delivers something 
radically different. Radically different. It is fraud. And no man transgress and defraud his brother. What ways does immorality defraud other people? What way? Well, here's a few. Premarital sex, the sexual union prior to marriage, defrauds someone's future wife or husband of their rightful expectation that they will marry a virgin. It defrauds them of that. We have a rightful expectation that we will marry someone, man or woman, depending on who, you know, whether we're a man or a woman, who is a virgin. Now, I know that's quaint in our culture. In fact, it's, a, it's something to smirk at, something to, to um, poke fun at. But, beloved, that just really reveals how far we've fallen. It's like the, the guy goes into the Louvre to, to, to look at the Mona Lisa, and he looks at it, and he says, you know, I don't really see that it's all that great. It doesn't look all that great to me. And the, and the, the dozer standing there says, sir, the painting is not on trial. You are. You have a right to expect your future spouse to be a virgin. Adultery defrauds. It defrauds the marriage partner of the sexual exclusivity of the marriage covenant itself. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 4, he addresses this to the believers there, and he says, Marriage is to be held in high, or excuse me, is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Listen, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Pornography defrauds. It defrauds the present and future marriage partner. It defrauds them of the wonder and the joy and the exclusivity of the marriage relationship by introducing mental images into that relationship. And it is to steal from your husband or your wife. Homosexuality defrauds. It defrauds both participants of their personhood. Because what it does is it takes through an unnatural sexual act that which was designed for procreation and turns it into an object of sexual gratification. It is to use each other. And it is to defraud one another of your personhood. Sexual immorality defrauds the church. It defrauds the church because the sexually immoral have betrayed their baptismal pledge. And in doing so, they have wounded the body of Christ through their hypocrisy. 
This is serious stuff. Notice verse 6. Let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Listen, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We are so prone to deception in these things. So prone. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Where Paul is addressing the church of Corinth with regard to these very same issues. And he says in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, why would he say, do not be deceived? The answer would be because it's easy to be deceived in these things. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is, those who have become so characterized by these sins that they are now in bondage to them and can be identified with the sin. They are no longer a person who, who has an, uh, commits adultery. It's now they are an adulterer. Now, this would be incredibly grim if it wasn't for verse 11. Look at verse 11. There is, a, there is a bright ray of gospel hope in all of this. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. In other words, that those who fall back into these practices, there is a way of escape. There is a, there is a way out. And the way out is to recognize that you are no longer characterized by that sin, but you are now new in Jesus Christ. And the power to escape the clutches of that old behavior is to remember and focus on the reality that you are new in Christ. That is where the power of the gospel lies. It is to reckon and believe, Romans 6, the truth that you are no longer a slave of sin. You are no longer such were some of you. These words do not characterize you any longer. Now listen, old habits... Sin patterns, they die hard. They die hard. But they cannot exist in the gospel atmosphere. It, it sucks the oxygen away from them. It crushes them. It removes their power. Purity portrays our theology. Purity protects our unity. Finally, John chapter 15. Purity provokes people's Hostility. Purity provokes people's hostility. 
For many years, many, many years in this country, there existed a thin veneer of civil religion. Civil religion. What I mean by that is that the majority of the population shows an outward commitment to the Christian faith without possessing the inner life change that comes only by the Spirit. We recognize the civil religion by things like the statement on our currency, in God we trust. Who's kidding who? It's portrayed by things like public prayers at various community events and and sporting events. It's communicated in, in some of the old patriotic songs that we still sing. And it manifested itself in in a general sexual restraint as a culture. But that thin veneer of civil religion has been torn wide open. It has been ripped asunder. Beginning in the 1960s, the vestiges of civil religion began to to fracture and the true heart of our nation began to leak out. Over a year ago, I read a book that I want to commend to you if you're interested in pursuing this idea of the rebelliousness of the 60s and what happened and where did it come from and how did all of that come about. I come in a book to you. It's a book by Alan Petigny, P-E-T-I-G-N-Y, Petigny, and it's entitled The Permissive Society, America, 1941 to 1965. There are some pictures in it, so that's good. (laughs) But it's made for serious reading. It's published by Cambridge University Press. I don't believe the man's a Christian, but his research and his insights, I think, are invaluable. The permissive society. Many of us in the church have been shocked. We have been shocked by both the public hostility and the speed by which our culture has adopted an openly pagan view of human sexuality. Our head is spinning. Where did that come from? How did that happen? So fast. John 15, John 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus warns his disciples they should not expect to be warmly welcomed by a world that has set itself against him. Since he has been persecuted, they should expect to be persecuted too, right? If the world hates you, verse 18, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Listen, they can't get at Christ. So they will go after him embodied in his people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus said, as Paul pursued the believers prior to his own conversion. 
Beloved, as followers of Christ with a transcendent sexual ethic, we are a living rebuke, a living rebuke of the unbelief of mankind. What that means is by our words, by our lifestyle, and by our refusal to go along with their unbelieving way, we are odious to them. This sermon is odious to the majority of our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, our fellow students, our society at large. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. I just pick it up at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That is, that one of the ways that you know you have, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, your union with Adam, into the kingdom of light, and your union with Christ, is that you no longer live in a lifestyle of sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, you are living for a different purpose. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They malign you. Because for a follower of Christ, we are an open rebuke of pagan sexual ethics. Recently, Tim Tebow, remember him? Former Heisman Trophy winner, attempted to play in the NFL on several occasions and never really was able to make it, signed a minor league baseball contract with the New York Mets. Whether he'll make it in professional baseball or not, anybody's guess. But what I thought was quite interesting this week, I listened to Boston Sports Talk Radio. That's how I keep up with God's team, the Red Sox. who are presently sitting on top of the American League East. Maybe not. The game might not. I don't know if the game's over today or not. In any case, the point of it all is, is the vitriol that has come across the airwaves by both commentators and call-in guests, you know, average people, against Tim Tebow. And it's crazy because they all acknowledge, hey, you know, this guy's the real deal. And you know what they're calling in about and they're so angry about? He's 29 years old and still a virgin. And they hate him for it. And they're not alleging he's, he's a hypocrite. They're saying, no, he is the real deal. And, he, and he's a nice guy. That's what they say. He's a nice guy. But we hate him. We hate him because, you know what? He is a living rebuke. He's a living rebuke. And so are we. 
Now, I need to probably quickly hasten to add here that if the fact that we know the Lord Jesus Christ and that the power of the Spirit dwells within us and that we have a, a, a transcendent sexual ethic by which in the power of the Spirit we're able to live by is not because of any good in me or you, real or foreseen, right? Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, for grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Not of yourselves, not of yourselves. So anything in us is a gift of God to us. So we, need to, we need to make sure we clearly proclaim that. This is not somebody who has arrived pointing down at someone else. We need to make sure that that's communicated. We also need to make sure that, that the offensiveness of our life and our message is, is rooted in the gospel of grace and not in our own obnoxious personalities or argumentative spirits. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Always be ready to make a defense, right? For the hope that lies within you. To anyone who asks with gentleness and reverence. So if we are offensive, we need to be offensive because of the gospel of grace. The gospel of love. We do not need to be offensive. And often we are offensive because we are obnoxious. Or because we are argumentative. Because we are concerned more about winning an argument than we are about winning a soul. And beyond that, beloved, we need to be willing to suffer. We need to be willing to suffer for our allegiance to Christ and a transcendent moral code. We should not expect the world to stand up and applaud. Just the opposite. And so Peter says, listen, do this without grumbling or retaliating towards those who are persecuting you for your faith. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. Christ suffered... He was reviled and he did not revile in return. He is our model. He is our model. As we draw this thing to a close, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I do see some things that I believe are happening and are going to intensify for the believing church. They're going to affect the way we live and the way we raise our children. I believe that there is going to be an increasing pressure to conform our sexual ethics to the culture. Particularly in paying homage at the altar of sexual self-identification. That is that I am sexually what I believe I am, what I want to be, what I think I am. Maybe I'm a woman, maybe I'm a man, maybe I'm both. Or I go back and forth. There is a growing heresy of the notion of Christian homosexuals. That one can be a practicing homosexual and a Christian. Beloved, that is a heresy straight from the pit of hell. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Those who are practicing that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we need to be very, very clear about that. Clear in our own minds, clear to be able to instruct our own children, 
Claire, to be able to encourage one another. Because, listen, there's a lot that, that would cause us to want to empathize with those who are trapped in, in the homosexual movement who have suffered because of it, for sure. But if we make compassion the, the measure of truth, then we will lose the gospel. We will go down the path of the liberal Protestant churches who slowly squeeze the gospel to the sidelines in their, in their desire, an earnest desire, I believe a true and earnest desire, to try to minister to the physical needs of people. And in the process, they move the gospel off to the side until they finally moved it right out of the building. The church in America is in danger. In danger. We are going to suffer because we will persistently refuse to affirm people in their sin. And that will bring wrath down on our heads. But, beloved, we can do no other. For to affirm someone in their sin is to condemn them to an eternity in hell. It is not loving. It is not loving. We don't get to define what is loving and what is not. God, our Creator, defines what love is and illustrated it for us in the greatest love gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to set us free. Beyond that, I think as our culture continues to bash its collective brains out against the wall of God's fixed order, we need to be ready to help individuals pick up the pieces. There are going to be more and more broken lives. More and more people who after attempting to live contrary to God and, and contrary to his moral order. Listen, it, his moral order is as fixed as, his, as the laws of gravity. You can no more go against God's moral order without consequence than you can leap off the top of this building and expect a soft landing. We need to be there. We need to be there to help people pick up the broken pieces. And we need to do it with a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion and an unbending commitment to the Word of God. That's the secret. An unbending commitment to the Word of God and a heart of compassion. That's Jesus. He never affirmed anyone in their sin. You remember the woman caught in adultery? What did he say to her at the end of the conversation? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He was gentle with the woman at the well. But he said to her, listen, you say, right, that you have not a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. He never, ever shaded the truth, but he spoke it with a heart of compassion, not a spirit of judgmentalism. And beloved, I think if, if we don't fight individually against the riptide of sexual perversity that is all around us, we will be pulled down as a fellowship. This church and its unity 
will always be in danger. Listen, our greatest threat does not come from outside. It comes from the inside. The greatest threat to the unity of the church is me. And it is you. We need to walk in the light. And it's pretty hard to point others to the light if we ourselves are walking in the darkness. So listen. If you're struggling with purity right now, you're sitting here in this pew and and you know who you are. If you're struggling with purity, and I know you're out there. I know it. If you are struggling, listen, for the sake of your own soul and for the health of this church, you need to come from the darkness into the light and get some help. If you keep covering it up, if you keep excusing it, if you keep talking to your friends who are struggling too and together you normalize it, you are in grave danger. You are in grave danger. You will not be judged. We will not speak words of condemnation to you. We love you. And we want you to know the freedom that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would Apply his word to the hearts of his people. Our Father, each and every one of us, as we sit here, we're engaged in a mind battle. It's like we go all the way back to the garden. It's like we recapitulate that meeting between Eve and the serpent. Has God really said? God is withholding something from us that that we're certain must be good for us. And yet it is one big lie. Oh, Lord, open our eyes. Oh, Lord, strengthen us. Grant us courage to come, to confess, to ask for help. And to begin to know the deliverance that is available only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name and for the sake of his church. Amen.